Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Greg Constantine, co-founder and CEO of Air Company. Air Company seeks to work with nature rather than against it. They've developed technologies that mimic photosynthesis to utilize as much CO2 as possible and convert it into valuable products such as perfumes, vodkas, hand sanitizers, sugar, jet fuels, and more. I was excited for this one because there's way too much carbon up in the atmosphere and we're going to have to remove a bunch of it. But the open question is, who pays for it? What's the market for it? So converting carbon to valuable products is a really interesting angle to explore. And with Air Company, they've found a way to do it such that they're starting in markets where the quantities can be smaller and the value can be higher, like perfumes, but ultimately hope to move into more carbon-intensive industries like industrial products. We have a fascinating discussion in this episode about the origin story for the company how the technology came about, how they made the decision to try to commercialize it, what some of the challenges were that they encountered in the early days, their initial beachhead market, some of the key differentiators relative to existing solutions, where they are in their adoption curve, what types of customers make a good profile, what types of capital they've used to scale, and also just what barriers exist in general in terms of what it will take to remove this carbon and to convert carbon to valuable products at enough scale to matter, and what levers we can pull and in which ways to help us go faster. This was a really great one, and I hope you enjoy it. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming. What a fascinating story Air Company is from a distance. So super excited that you agreed to come on and that we can spend a good chunk of time here digging into it because... From the cheap seats, it's pretty awesome. I appreciate that. 
yeah, look, hopefully we can kind of give a bit of insight into what we do and why we do it. Sounds great. Well, for starters, what is it? How do you describe Air Company when people ask? You know, we just entered the elevator and, and, and pushed a button five floors up. So what do you do? Yeah, so Air Company is a, an engineering and carbon technology company. We're based in New York and we take carbon dioxide. We turn it into carbon negative alcohols and fuels. We applicate the alcohols that we, that we make to the consumer industries in the short term with a goal of transitioning that into those industrial industries in the long term so we can be a provider of these eventual fuels. Got it. And how did all this come about? And I, and I asked that twofold. One, what the origin story for the company, but two, the origin story for you caring about this stuff and doing this kind of work. Yeah. Well, I guess as I had, as you could probably gather from the sound of my voice, and as I kind of mentioned offline just before, I'm from Australia originally. So growing up in Australia, which is a this beautiful island surrounded by nature, to then having moved to to New York, another island, not necessarily as naturist as what Australia is. Over the course of spending time here, I really became acutely aware to my surroundings and the lack of environment around me as well. And I would say that that in combination with the role that I was working at at that point in time, which is for one of the biggest alcohol companies in the world, I started to really become in tune with how detrimental a lot of industries are to our planet but also a sense of lacking of that environmental and, and nature's background of Australia. And then when I met my now co-founder and business partner, Stafford, who's been a career technologist and an environmentalist, it really opened my eyes to the world of carbon technology and the world of you know, technology and innovation as a whole and how you can use technology to help not only innovate, insight change, but hopefully create products that are far better for the planet than their predecessors and processes you know, through technology like ours that are far better for the planet than their predecessors as well. So, yeah, we went on almost five years ago now to, to start a company with that sole mission of, you know, how do we use technology and merge, it with, merge these innovative ideas with creativity to help the planet and to help humanity kind of move forward. And so how did those dots connect for you? Because, it, I mean, it sounds like Air Company is a pretty technical endeavor. And so did you uncover technology and start thinking about the best ways to apply it? Was it the problem that you really anchored on first? How did you kind of cross that chasm from longing to do something more purposeful to doing what you're doing now? Yeah, great question. Yeah. So for myself, it was really around solving a problem. And when I met staff, staff got his PhD from Yale in chemistry and physics. And it's really kind of like the scientific and technical brains behind what we do. When we had met and I was, you know, really chatting with him about, you know, some of the things that I wanted to go out and do from a purpose driven sense and from a product sense and from a business sense. And, you know, staff was working on, you know, a variety of technologies. One of those conceptual technologies being that, you know, being the technology that we, that we have kind of commercialized today was, you know, how do we bring those two variant skill sets together and really use a combination of, you know, my background and his background to try to bring some of these things to life because we know that with technologies like what we've developed now at Air Company that through his background, that if we were to bring that together with, you know, some of the innovative principles that, that I had in my arsenal, I would say, and some of the creative elements, if we were to bring those two things together, hopefully those skill sets can be complementary and hopefully that we're able to bring some of these technologies to life and show the world that it's actually possible. So was it that staff was working on some things in the lab and they were showing some promise and then you got together with him and decided you were going to take a run at, at commercializing him? I didn't feel like I'm putting words in your mouth. 
yeah, you're kind of there. It's, you know, Staffan during his PhD was working on some of these elements in there and it was really around, okay, if we've got a basis for it, like, you know, what are the real applications for a technology like this? How can we commercialize it? Does it make sense? Does it not make sense? Is there a market for it? Would people even want it? Can we even do it? Is it even possible? These are all kind of the questions that, you know, that staff and I were, were asking ourselves and staff was asking me at the point in time. And, you know, after a lot of deliberation and kind of time spent on it, we kind of got together and said, like, we think it's possible. We think there will be a market for these types of products and these technologies in the future. And if we are successful at commercializing a technology like this or actually bringing it to life, we think it can be transformative. So let's go out and try. And maybe take a crack at explaining the technology to a layman like me. Sure. Yep. So we take carbon dioxide, which is, as you know, is the most abundant greenhouse gas on planet Earth causing climate change. We combine it with hydrogen. The hydrogen we create ourselves on site via a process known as electrolysis. When we combine the CO2 and the hydrogen together inside our reactors, our carbon conversion reactors, the reaction that it creates when it hits our catalyst, which is a proprietary piece of material that we've created, the reaction that it creates creates a mixture of alcohols and water. All this entire process is run on renewable power. When that mixture of alcohols and water comes out of our system, we then separate the alcohols and the water out. We recycle the water back into our process and we take that alcohol that we use, that we make, and we apply it to an array of different industries. Now, one of the types of alcohols that we create is a type of alcohol called ethanol. That ethanol that we create is of a very high purity and easily purifiable as well. So the reason why we've concerted our efforts, I would say, to the consumer industries in the short term is because it tends itself to the consumer industries because of the purity of the product. On top of that, industries like the beverage industry and the fragrance industry are where the volumes of ethanol needed are relatively low, but the value of the product is relatively high. So for an early stage company like ourselves, when your cost to produce is quite high, you're able to enter into these kind of markets and actually sell a commercialized product that helps generate revenue as you scale and act as R&D for your technology as well. And for these initial target markets that you mentioned, how are they getting the, the alcohol today and what is the pitch to them on why this is a more compelling way to do so? Yeah, another good question. So, you know, traditional beverage industries like a bottle of vodka, you'll ferment corn or grain or potato and, and you know, and in that fermentation process, you'll create a mash of alcohol similar to a mash that we get. But in order to irrigate and, and farm all of that grain, you obviously need land and the irrigation for it and the power and the and gasoline. So it's a hugely detrimental process to our planet. And when you kind of talk about the secular nature of the learnings or the drawstring, you know, I was working for, for Fidiazio, which is obviously an alcohol company that's creating their alcohols originally via these methods. So when you're going out and exploring kind of the methods of manufacturing their work there, you're really seeing how much land is being used and how much infrastructure is being built and how detrimental that is to our planet so when you compare that to ours where our first facility is a 2500 square foot space in brooklyn that bypasses the entire fermentation process and makes the ethanol on site in a 500 square foot room within that facility you can see some of the disparities from from a land perspective alone so what's interesting to these big companies to kind of directly answer your question is not only the the huge disparity on the carbon footprint right we're removing about a pound of CO2 per bottle we create versus your more sustainable brands are emitting 10 to 15 pounds per bottle in which they create. 
And removing, removing meaning? Utilizing. And where are you getting it from? We're actually source agnostic when it comes to the CO2. We access CO2 from a variety of different ways, and I'll kind of dig into that a little bit, but we're agnostic in what we need. So, you know, we've worked with direct air capture on site ourselves. Currently, you know, we work with a provider in the northeast of New York that actually captures the CO2 before it's emitted to the atmosphere off of traditional ethanol plants. So the alcohol that, that we're actually making, we're actually you know making it from CO2 that's captured off of the traditional methods of manufacture for it. We deployed a second piece of technology as part of the, the Carbon X Prize. We were a finalist in a, in a carbon competition called the X Prize, and we deployed our technology in, in Calgary last year. And they actually have an amine capture system on site over there. So we can access it in a variety of ways, but, but in New York, we get it off of traditional fermentation processes. And is all CO2 created equal? That's a loaded question because I, kn- I know the answer is no, but I'll ask it anyways. Yeah, no, the, the, the answer <laughs> is no. <laughs> Obviously, as you know, there's a variety of different ways in which it's created or in which it's captured and which and how they do it. And I think that, you know, the one that's most top of mind for a lot of folks, and I know you've had some people speak about it on the show as well, is, you know, the route of direct air capture. And look, we're hopeful that at some point in the future, we would love for it to make sense from an economical point of view and from an energy input point of view as well. And, you know, we've even worked on areas of it for ourselves here, knowing that our technology can allow it to, but it really has to make cost sense at scale because for these technologies or technologies like ours to be applicable at scale, they have to be cost effective as well. Well, I have a bunch more air company questions, but I want to put that aside for a moment and just talk about converting carbon to valuable products in general. And the reason I bring that up, well, I guess multiple reasons, but but one is that we have all this carbon that's up in the atmosphere and there's a lot of talk about what we do to reduce our emissions. But even if we reduce our net new emissions, we still have way more up in the atmosphere than we should. And it's up there for hundreds and hundreds of years or longer. And so there's this gap where reducing isn't going to get us there fast enough and it's not going to be enough and we need to remove. So we can remove what through whether it's direct air capture or carbon capture and storage. There's, I mean, there's, there's different ways to remove it. But one of the real challenges and I'm saying it as a statement, but these are questions for validation by people deeper into it like you, but what's the market for it? Who's going to pay? And so it's like the government can pay you through 45Q or things like that, but then you're relying on government to be the buyer. And it just feels not like a comfy place to be for a long-term sustainable strategy. So I'm really intrigued when I hear about converting carbon to valuable products, but I have so many questions. Maybe just talk a bit about the landscape as you see it, where we are today, where we need to go, and what some of the hurdles are that are making it difficult to get there. There's definitely a lot of work to be done, for sure. And it doesn't just start with one company or one technology or one organization. It has to be worked on together, whether it's you know startups, entrepreneurs, legislation, and big business and beyond. And I think that the, the challenge is a big one. And, and as you mentioned it, there's still a tons, <laughs> billions of tons of CO2 you know, still up there that need to be sequestered as well. I think that the route that we took through that route of products is one, because as you mentioned, it isn't completely reliant on external factors, right? And while making and selling, you know, vodka or making and selling fragrance isn't going to solve the entire problem for us, we're hopeful that it can be 
a solvent part of the problem and a part of the problem in a few ways. One, that it can show people that these products are real and that you can actually do and create something from CO2 because the sad reality is when we started the business and still to this day is that there are so many incredible technologies out there that never see the light of day. And they don't see the light of day because people can't understand them, people don't believe in them, and that people don't necessarily think that it's doable or that it's real. But when you create a product and you put it in front of someone and you can really show, reasonably show that this product was, was made from carbon dioxide or from an innovative technology, it becomes a reality for people. And once it becomes a reality for people, we always say that everything kind of starts and ends with the people and that, you know, when they're helping inform, you know, decisions, that's what helps change big business. That's what helps change legislation. And that's what helps continue to push technologies forward and push innovation forward as well. So while we're not sitting here being reliant on the government because we're going in and creating high value products like this, we still need to work together and we need them on side for this to be effective at scale. Because I mentioned it earlier but these products can sit and live on their own but for the technology to be successful and to actually create true impact at scale which is reducing or utilizing the most amount of co2 as possible we have to be able to do it at volume and the way to do it at volume is when those costs come down over the course of time and and you need legislation on your side to be able to do so and given how many different types of products there are in the world and the fact that for example you mentioned that not all co2 is created equal. How do you think things are going to play out in terms of, do you think it's going to be one or a handful of companies that end up being the companies that convert carbon to products across many categories, industries, and geographies? Or do you think that it will require some degree of specialization where there'll be many players in many different verticals and different types of carbon and different types of products and that there's room for for a lot of different players doing a lot of different things? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, one that I've never been asked before, actually. And I think that as I think through it now, I would say that we're hopeful that it's as widespread as possible. And only for the reason that we hope that those barriers to entry over time become lesser and lesser and lesser and that, you know, legislation does change to make it you know easier for companies or to make it more cost effective for companies to be able to do so as well. I think that it's such a The industry has been around, but it's also such a new industry at the same time where there's so much new innovation that's happening that I would love for more and more companies to crop up and for already existing big business to continue to innovate internally. I think that, you know, even though there's only a a handful of companies doing either similar things to what we do or a variety of others, I think that as the industry grows and as people become more aware to what is possible, I would love to see it across such a variety of sectors and and cross industry as well. Uh Uh-huh. And putting myself in the shoes of maybe a potential customer of yours, I just jotted down a a few notes of things that, I mean, I'm not in those shoes, so I have to wing it a little bit, but just a few things that would be on my mind. And one of them is costs. So how do you stack up today? Where do you hope to get over time? And what are the key drivers of that that you hope to improve? Yeah, we're more expensive today, for sure. We're relatively small in that sense. And I would say that the goal is to to reach parity or even below parity, i.e. cheaper than traditional methods of manufacture. The reality is these things take time. You know, We can make our our systems and our technology and our processes more efficient, which reduce our costs, but there's external factors that reduce our costs as well that time will help with, you know, cost of CO2, cost of renewable power, cost of hydrogen, depending on how you're getting it. If you're doing electrolysis like us at this scale, you know, renewable power is a big factor within that as well. So 
yeah, right now, you know, higher cost to produce it. And I guess the last one on that is, is like, I think that anyone that tells you that they're going to be cheaper to produce than traditional methods tomorrow, it just ain't the truth. And we're hopeful that we can collapse those timeframes and be as cheap or cheaper than traditional methods as soon as possible. But these things take time. Uh-huh. And then what about scale? So, I mean, if a customer does a little pilot with you and, and they like it and they want to roll it out in a broader way and they're willing to pay a premium both to get the brand halo and because they're under pressure for their net zero commitments that they don't know how they'll fulfill, how scalable is this today? And then same question, like how scalable do you hope it'll get over time and what are the key drivers and barriers to making that happen? Yeah, so the system that we deployed as part of the Carbon X Prize had a nameplate capacity of one ton of CO2 in per day. So we've achieved a kind of a pilot scale that shows the work that we've done there. We operated that system for about 10,000 continuous operational hours, so 24-7 for 10,000 hours, now redeploying that facility down in Brooklyn. The scale that we want to get to is obviously world scale when you think about you know chemical plants and you think about kind of like you know use cases of, of, of ethanol and kind of the subcategories in which we want to go into. The thing that does take time is putting real steel in the ground. And you know when you think about you know, manufacturing plants and building facilities, you got to put real steel in the ground, which which does take time. Now, you know, our goal is to of course build and make as much as possible. But we always want to walk before we sprint because, you know, the reason in which a lot of our predecessors have failed is for trying to scale too fast. So, you know, a big focus for us is making sure that we're spending the correct amount of time scaling correctly and working with our partners in the right way to understand the learnings from all of them so that we're actually scaling in the right way, not just in the fastest way possible all the time. Uh huh. And we've talked about cost. We've talked about scale. What about the quality and consistency of the output? Yeah, that's a really good one. So, so staff at our CTO spends you know a tremendous amount of time on it. And you know, when you go into industries like the beverage industry, or when you go into industries like the perfume industry, you're consuming a product. So, quality is at the forefront. You know, you have to deal with so many regulatory bodies just to even get your you know your final product approved. You know, dealing with regulatory bodies in the US like the TTB, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Trade Bureau, in conjunction with with folks like the FDA as well. So, we're very very stringent on quality of product and. It wouldn't be, you know, these ethanol-based products wouldn't be successful if the quality of the product wasn't really high. And that's just a testament to, to our team, to the team that's working on it and to the work that they've done on the distillation side of things to be able to really produce and then work on such a clean product as well. And when you think about taking a company like this to market, don't share anything that's not public or that you don't want to share, but but it'd be interesting to understand how you've capitalized the company, how you stage that and what sources of capital and also just what advice you have for other climate tech entrepreneurs that are maybe working on technology in the lab and thinking about bringing it out of lab and trying to work through similar in terms of how they should be thinking about capitalizing their companies and technology. Yeah, I'll start with the second part of that question for, for kind of if there's anyone else out there listening and just say, you know, just Try to be as creative and scrappy and resourceful as possible because gaining access to capital, raising capital is, as an entrepreneur yourself, Jason, I'm sure you, whether or not you've been in that process, is it's never as easy as you think it's going to be and it's always a little bit more painful than you want it to be as well. So 
being persistent, being creative, you know, never stopping is part of that process as well. And just kind of, you know, being a bit of a bulldog in that process and making sure that you're always just constantly moving forward and, and being as resourceful as possible and leave no stone unturned. For us, we bootstrapped the company ourselves, Stafford and myself originally, and then went out and, and raised a seed round of capital at an early stage that, that allowed us to really prove things out first. And we've always, you know, our capital strategy has always been prove and develop technology, prove that that you know, phase of technology works, prove that there's a market for a consumer in which if, if you're going into an area there and then go and try to access capital off of that, off of the back of those milestones and that success. And, and that's how we've kind of done it. So yeah, the early stage kind of capital that we got was a mixture of equity from a seed round, but we've also you know, won prize money from, from the folks over at XPRIZE. We've won prizes from folks like NASA and we've won some grant funding as well, both in, in the US and, and in Canada. So I would say that like we try to access a variety of or various amounts of capital and, and the types of capital, and we'll continue to do so as well. And, and you've got to really think about what's what's most right for your business and what's most right for your business at that point in time. But kind of more so than anything, you've got to make sure that your business still has the ability to survive. So you'll do what's right and, and almost whatever it takes as well. And how have you thought about things like non-dilutive funding, if at all? And, and obviously, winning contests is a form of non-dilutive funding. But what about grants? Yeah, grants play a big, big role. We've, you know, we've just recently won a grant from the National Science Foundation as well. Organizations, obviously, like the Department of Energy, play a big role in the industry that we're in, and we're you know, in constant communication with them. And, in our ability or, or our want or our ability to try to get access to that grant funding as well. You know, as for from a company perspective and as an entrepreneur, you're always trying to make sure that you're limiting the amount of dilution to your shareholders within the business as well. So access to, to non-diluted funding is always a, a win. Granted, you have to consider, you know, what the implications of that are as well. And, you know, if you talk about, you know, things like debt finance, there's obviously a, a lot of pros, but also a lot of cons to it and just weighing up those against the milestones within your business and what you think that you reasonably have the ability to do is how you're going to make that decision at the end of the day. And with the initial customers that you do have, given that it is more expensive, at least today, what's motivating them to pull the trigger and give this a try? Depends on the type of customer. If you're selling a good into a, into a high value, low volume market, such as the fragrance industry as an example, the ability to fluctuate more on price than if you're selling a commodity chemical is far greater, right? Because they're selling these really high high margin products where they can fluctuate a little bit more on price. So there's a bit more price flexibility and a little bit less sensitivity when you're in those high value arenas that allows them to trial things like this a little bit more. And on top of that, it's all about the pathway. It's where do we think that we can get to in time? And not only where do we think that we can get to as a business, but where do they think that our business can get to over the course of time, given their analysis of the industry that they're in and given their analysis of current context around the world. And we touched on it before, but it, you know, if the goal in some of these sectors is parity over the next several years, then that's when it becomes you know really exciting to these businesses because not only are you then able to match or get close to matching their cost, the claims that they're making from their net zero goals and their sustainable impact goals are able to be met as well with technologies like this. So you're really able to help provide their business with a lot of kind of a lot of success for them as well. Uh -huh. And how do you think about impact and how do you measure it, if at all? We measure impact by a few factors, but number one is, you know, how much CO2 are we utilizing? 
you know, the more CO2 and the most efficient use of that utilization is a goal. And so the more CO2 that we're utilizing, the more product that we're creating, the more impact that we're having. A tertiary kind of sign of impact for us is watching the industry grow and watching the industry grow around us. We've seen so many of our peers since we started the business go out and, and try to commercialize products, try to commercialize technology, even, you know, things like my climate journey, you know, seeing, you know, podcasts, seeing content streams pop up, just seeing so much education around it, even just the questions that you're sitting here asking now weren't questions that we would get asked five, six years ago when you start the company. So I think that that awareness is a huge metric for us because it's knowing that if our ultimate goal is to continue to push humanity forward and continue to kind of innovate and we're seeing, you know, the industry just grow as a whole, huge win, massive, massive win. When you think about the future and this next phase, what are you most worried about? Where are the biggest risks in the company and what's keeping up at night? Yeah, a lot of things keep us up at night, but I, I really believe that, you know, we're at a stage now where, and a lot of companies, you know, at similar stages to us now is, is coming out of, you know, innovation and coming out of R&D and you'll always continue to innovate and do research and development but you know how can you and how can we as a company really start to make this commercially viable at scale because that's when you're creating real impact and you know that's kind of the inflection point that we're at with these this next scale of facility that we're going to build is we're really going to start to understand where the competitive advantage lies or where the advantage lies compared to traditional methods you know not co2 derived and is it going to be truly viable at scale from a cost roadmap, cost reduction roadmap, from an output roadmap as well. And how do you think about policy? How much does that factor into your ultimate success? And how much do you resource to it, if at all? Yeah, we've been under-resourced on the policy front, whether you call it under-resourced or just you know having focused on other areas of the business, I would say is where our focus has lied. I think that we're going to have a, a stronger focus on it moving forward because it, it is important and policy and, and, and the lobbying for it is, is a massively important part of it. However, when you're a you know, when you're spending the first several years of your company kind of scrapping to make sure that things are just working or that kind of, you know, the, the lights are on, on on the ceiling, you tend to spend a lot of your time trying to get through the innovation, the R&D and the engineering first. And, you know, a bit of the, the beauty of, you know, selling these kind of higher value products is that we haven't been reliant on it up until now. But as we think about the transition from, from these consumer industries into these industrial industries, it becomes more prevalent than ever. And so I think that as an industry, and I've said it a few times, but I think, you know, creating communities like the community that you've created really helps to kind of continually push that because you're giving folks a voice and you're shining a spotlight on these companies and on these technologies that are needing it. When you think about that transition, how do you think about timing and also what are the key differences that need to be factored in in terms of doing things differently to support that evolution? I would say time's never on our side. <laughs> so, you know, when we think about timing, we're always trying to be mindful of, you know, taking that into consideration. Like time is never on our side. It's the one thing that we always lose. So we're always trying to push forward. And, and forgive me, but I, I didn't quite catch the second part of that question. The second part of that question is when you think about transitioning from consumer to more of these industrial markets, what are the key differences in the industrial market that you need to plan for? And then what does that planning entail or what types of changes would need to take place for you to be able to make that transition effectively? 
Yeah, there's just, there's a lot. There's so many. And I think the really key drivers that we think about that to make it viable from consumer to industrial is really just output and cost. Like, you know, can you provide on global scale? And if you can't, then you've got to try to figure out how you can. So that's, you know, engineering and scale up. And then is it going to be cost effective at scale? Because these technologies are great when you're selling them in a high value product, but you really need to think about if your cost roadmap is doable and if it makes sense. And if it does, you've got to just work tirelessly at reducing those costs and increasing your output and hopefully bring on you know, the right partners alongside you to help you work towards those. And when you think about what needs to happen over the next several years, we've talked about some of the tailwind in the market with new interest and motivation and urgency and capital. What are some of the bottlenecks and what are some of the gaps that if they were no longer gaps would help you and others trying to do similar to accelerate? Access and availability to renewable power, access and availability to green CO2, I guess, so to speak, and you know, access and availability to green hydrogen from our point of view. It's just like there's, there's so many factors that marry up to it. I think if you ask Folks in similar positions of ours, they'll, a lot of them kind of use this analogy. There's areas of our businesses that we're kind of almost like a, a Netflix waiting for the internet to catch up, right? And there's you're sitting and developing technologies that still need so many tertiary things to line up for them to be successful at scale. So what you continue to do is just continue to work on it, you know, iterate, optimize processes in a hope that over the course of time, the cost of renewable power will come down. The availability cost, you know, of CO2 will continue to come down. The, the advancement of technologies like direct air capture hopefully will continue to decrease their costs so that then, you know, at scale, we have the ability to integrate all of these tertiary processes into processes like ours so that it can work at scale and be deployed all around the world. Uh huh. And I know you've already taken on a lot with Air Company, and it's important that you stay focused to deliver on the mission that you have in front of you. But if you look at these three other areas that you're reliant on, the renewable power and green CO2 and green hydrogen, if I were to double click on each one of those, do you have any specific ideas or Anything that, because there's a, there's a number of aspiring founders and check writers and government policymakers and things like that, that listen to this show. So how could those be addressed, each of those, to make things easier for important companies like yours? Yeah, I think you're seeing things like, you know, you know, carbon taxes in place and, you know, bills like the buyback better bill that will hopefully kind of, you know, reduce or incentivize the reduction in cost of green hydrogen or the production of it. So there's things that are happening and, and, and while we're, you know, involved within those realms, I would say we're hopeful that we can lean on, you know, the experts within those fields that are working on it, you know, to do so. But you've had guys on your show like Paul from Remora who are, you know, capturing CO2 off of trucks. You know, I think, you know, seeing new innovative technologies like this cropping up is what's helping push the industry forward as well, right? Where you've got young entrepreneurs going out and trying to innovate in one of those three sectors as well to try to make it, you know, more applicable or more readily available as well. So I think that it's going to be a, a sum of all parts and, and we're just hopeful that like we can at least help play a role in utilizing those elements of areas in which people are working on. Uh -huh. And this is more of a personal question, but how much are you motivated by mission here versus the financial opportunity in front of you? And does one come at the expense of another? Like, how do you think about those two things and the tension between them? Yeah, I would say that like we're pretty much mostly 
majority weighted on the mission and the purpose. And that's why we've got, you know, such a group of hardworking folks on this side. You know, I would say that the economics on selling a, an ethanol or, or sustainable aviation fuel for our business right now, they don't necessarily make a whole ton of sense in that our cost to produce is so high. So the financial motivation isn't what drives us on a daily basis at this point in time. The goal is in the future that you can build a real successful business behind it. But the why we do what we do is is why we started the company, which is you know for us, the rise in atmospheric CO2 levels is what's not only continually causing climate change but you know allowing us or allowing earth to potentially become uninhabitable so if we can help play a role in the reduction of that that's why we do what we do so it's all about the mission and why and hopefully that can translate to a successful business over the course of time so given that that's the primary driver for you and the team how important is it for that to be the primary driver for the capital sources that you work with along the way Yeah, good question. I would say that they have to have it as a consideration and it has to be a part of it because I said it earlier on, these things take time. It's not going to happen overnight. So for the funders out there or the funders that, you know, that that listen to your show, I would say that like things aren't going to change overnight. Sure, we've gone out and produced a, a high value, low volume product that is a bit better of a solution to allow people to understand the business metrics and the flow of it. That being said, I've harped on it. It takes time. These, these things take time. So you have to understand that a lot of the folks that are entering these categories are mission driven. Sure, they might come from business backgrounds and the rest, but you know the mission is also important. So understanding that there's a layer of that that comes into play and that you know when you're funding projects like this, that some will fail and all we can do is continually try because without trying, you're not going to have the, the success at the end of the day. So yeah, I think that hopefully answers it. Uh-huh. And if we look ahead, I mean, it's an arbitrary number, but say 10 years and you've just knocked the cover off the ball and exceeded your wildest dreams in terms of what you were able to achieve with Air Company. What have you done at that time? What does the company look like? The goal would be to be continually be applying our technology in all of the industry verticals in which it can be applied to, you know, working with large scale partners in those verticals to deliver it at scale, because that's where you can create true impact. That's where you can, you know, utilize the most amount of CO2 possible as well. And again, I touched on it a little bit before, but if we can inspire others to go out and, and at least try something or try something new, try something different, then that's a win for us as well. Because staff and I, when we met, we're just two guys in a bar having a drink who said, we think that we should go out and try something like this, irrespective of all the no's that you receive or kind of the disbelief in what you're trying to do in commercializing products that big business hadn't done before. So if we can be an inspiration for others to go out and do so as well, I think that that would be a massive win for us as a company. And a bunch of people with diverse backgrounds, industries, geographies listen to the show. How can they or we be helpful to you? Where do you need help? Support and education. Our products are the best educative tool around what we do. And, you know, I think as a group or as a community, you know, the climate and carbon technology community, I think we all need to, you know, support each other in the endeavors in which we're doing. And I think what you guys are doing, Jason, over at My Climate Journey, not only from this, but from the kind of, you know, the the, the investments that you make and, and beyond, I think is a show of support. And I think, you know, the support that the industry gives each other is great. You know, any time that you know, new technologies crop up or you read about on the internet, I think you know, a lot of the light is positive on it, which is great. And I think that we need to continue to support those that are going out and innovating as well. Greg, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? 
I think the questions are great, and I think you kind of you know touched on a lot of elements. I think you know from a funding perspective and beyond, you know, I would just say that like what technologists are doing and engineers are doing and scientists are doing is really hard stuff, and it's not easy to continually try to push boundaries and and continue to embark on the work that they've spent their careers and doing and, and will continue to do. So I think the support is very well needed, and hopefully we can continue to push boundaries. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Excited to watch your continued progress. We'll be rooting for your success and best of luck to you and the whole Air Company team. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.